Hey there, it's Captain Roger from the Salvation Army Corps in Grass Valley, California, and I'm so glad that you all could join us here online for our message this week. Uh, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, and join with me as we uh, pick up the story in Acts chapter 4 in just a moment. You know, there is a, a longing for unexplored and distant places that is just seated in humankind. And I'm sure he stole it from someone who came before. But the explorer, Captain James Cook, once said that it was his intention to go not only farther than any man had been before, but as far as he thought it was possible for anyone to go. In the early years of last century, uh, author H.P. Lovecraft wrote up this about one of his characters. He said, at length, sick with longing for those glittering sunset streets and cryptical hill lanes among ancient tiled roofs, nor able sleeping or waking to drive them from his mind, Carter resolved to go with bold entreaty whither no man had gone before. It's that uh, desire to see around the edges of the known. It's, it's within us all. It's waiting to be tapped so we can move forward into the unknown, allowing ourselves to embrace the journey. In the 1950s, hoping to inspire Americans to support the newborn space program, the White House published this booklet that listed reasons why it was essential for us to do this. And they said the first of these factors is the compelling urge of man to explore and to discover the thrust of curiosity that leads men to try to go where no one has gone before. This booklet led directly to the creation a decade later of the introduction to what would become one of the farthest reaching and most imaginative TV and movie series of all time. Let's see if you can identify it. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Mm, to boldly go. Now, I know some of you have never bothered to watch an episode of Star Trek in your life, and that's fine, you know. And I know that there are some of you who are probably upset that I read the Picard-era introduction instead of the original series introduction from Captain Kirk. And you know what? That's fine, too. But I bet every one of you feels something stir when you think of what it might mean to boldly go. Even tasks which were previously mundane and routine could be enhanced if only we would seize the reins of the day and hold them firmly in our grasp as we stride forward into the vast wilderness of our daily lives. I will boldly go to the laundry to wash the socks that have been washed a hundred times before. I will boldly go to the fridge to plumb its hidden recesses for the lunch that no one has ever made so well or so fillingly before. To boldly go... <laughs> the, the phrase, it suggests a certain a confidence, a, a drive or compulsion to press on against the odds, be it into the bright light of sunrise or the dark shadows of night or the slightly stinky reaches of the clothing pile known as Mount Washmore. I will boldly go. That sense of anticipation, the nervousness, the hopes, the expectations, the sense of letting go of the past so that you can move untethered into something which somehow is going to be better, more than what has been. It's, it's exactly the sense that the earliest followers of Jesus must have been feeling in those first days after the resurrection and the ascension of their master, who it turned out really was exactly who he'd claimed to be after all. The Lord, the, 
God and the Son of God, someone who cares, something more than human, yet someone who is every bit as human as you or I. Jesus had boldly come and then told them that their job was to boldly go until the time came for him to come again. Now in those first days, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter and John, apostles of Jesus, that means uh, some of his lead followers, uh, Peter and John, they had gone to the temple with several of the others, not looking to make a stir, but open to do whatever it was God might urge them to do. Then, as they entered into the main complex, there was a man who had been born without the use of his legs. He sat on a mat outside the gate, a place where he had been every day, probably since before Peter was even born. He was so much part of the temple scenery, most folks probably didn't even notice him anymore. He was just another beggar asking for coins. But that day, that day Peter saw him. He really saw him. And he walked over and he looked him in the eye and he spoke to him and he said that in the name of Jesus, the man could walk. And then he reached down and helped the man to his feet. The pandemonium as they entered the temple court was immense. And Peter turned and he laid out the truth of Jesus and his resurrection to the same crowds that had been present at his execution less than two months before. People who had seen Jesus heal, who had heard him teach with so much authority and certainty, who had seen Jesus make a stir in the temple and be crucified. And now here was a man who had been with the rabbi preaching the same message, having done the same kind of miraculous healing. And the lame man who had always lain on a mat outside was in here with Peter dancing, dancing. And Acts chapter four picks up this story right at verse number one. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Now, these are the authorities who are present to keep order. The priests, they administered worship in the temple. The captain of the guard, we last heard from him in Luke 22 when he was plotting with his men and Judas the betrayer, how they would arrest Jesus under the cover of night. The Sadducees, these were the the elites, the leaders of the politically powerful sect of Judaism, which had most of the temple staff and their families carefully lined up behind them. This was the place of their greatest authority. This was the, their sanctum, a place that very few people would even dare to question them, and no one wanted to make trouble or a stir in this area. And outside of Jerusalem, the Pharisees might hold the hearts of the people, but here, especially in the temple, it was all about the Sadducees, and it had been for about 200 years. And they have come to see what it is causing such a stir in their temple. <clears throat> and if you didn't get that, that's how they thought of it. Their temple. They're not happy with what they find, by the way. Look at verse 2. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, they've been arrested. What was the problem here exactly? Well, they were preaching that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that others could also be raised by Jesus. 
Sadducees didn't really believe in resurrection. That was one of the big things that separated them from the Pharisees. So the idea of a resurrected Messiah who would then resurrect others, that would have been as offensive as a drag queen in Tennessee. So just like close-minded thugs have done for centuries before and after and today, they flexed their muscles to try to stop what they didn't understand. They arrested Peter and John, and we'll see in a moment, at least one of the others with them. But not everyone was closed to new possibilities. Some made this decision to boldly go with the followers of Jesus. What had been a few had become dozens and then hundreds and then thousands and now 5,000 men plus wives, children, and members of their households. Because that's how faith functioned in their community. The leader of the household would set the path, and the rest, family and staff and slaves, they would all follow. So the 5,000 mentioned here could represent as many as 20,000 or more new believers. Kind of amazing, isn't it? Now, I'm going to point out, those believers would have been coming from all over not just the people who lived in Jerusalem, because this was during uh, one of the festivals that everyone was required to attend. So this is a big crowd, big crowd. Kind of amazing, though. Verse 5. The uh, next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? All right, so who are all these people? Stop for a second. Figure it out. Uh, Who are all these people? Let me just simplify it. These are the people from the current power structure. These are the folks who had arranged for the arrest and execution of Jesus. They're all on one side. Peter and John are on the other. So we've got the power elite on one side, including the best trained, most powerful men in Israelite society. And on the other side... Two followers of Jesus. One, uh, an expert fisherman. Yeah. (laughs) The accused men are hauled before the authorities. A crowd of observers is there. They are called to silence. And then the high priest, or one of the many agents that he has arrayed with him, leans forward and says, Who gave you the authority to do what you were doing? Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. I've heard this taught different ways, but I want you to take note. Peter is respectful of his accusers and their authority. They haven't even leveled a specific charge at him, so he would have a right to be angry, but instead he's careful, he's clear. Hey, if you're asking about this man who is lame and is healed, we did that in Jesus' name. Jesus, you know, that same guy you crucified a few weeks back? But God has raised him up from the dead, and because of him, this man can walk. And then he gives him one piece more. Look at verse 11. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Then he goes on to say, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So this is two parts. The first is a scripture verse these guys are all familiar with about that cornerstone. Jesus quoted it when some of these same leaders asked him where his authority came from. 
and cornerstone is probably not the best translation. It it might be better to think of it as a, a capstone, the the top piece that supports and binds two walls or structures together. Peter's not trying to hang them up on the, the fact that they had rejected and executed Jesus. He's just trying to point out that the very rejection that they might think disqualifies Jesus from being the Messiah is something that God anticipated and predicted back in the prophets. He wants to make sure that they get that. Because if they don't get that, they're not going to be able to accept the second part. Because he's saying, look, it's not just that Jesus can heal like he did for this man. He's saying, look, Jesus is the only source of salvation. You've got to come to him. What's Peter doing? He's working for the salvation of the people who killed Jesus. Why would he do that? Because he knows that's what Jesus would do. It's what the Spirit is leading him to do. It's what God wants for all of his children. Remember, God said this through the prophet Ezekiel. This is from Ezekiel 18, 21. If a wicked person turns away from all the sins they have committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them. Because of the righteous things they have done, they will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? What Ezekiel was saying, what God was saying through Ezekiel, what Peter is saying in his preaching, what Jesus said throughout his entire ministry, is there is a path back to God from anywhere we have put ourselves in this world. And that path is through Jesus. Now, Peter's speech, short though it is, seems to have had an effect on the men who were sitting in judgment in him, uh, judgment of, of him and those who were with him. Uh, verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. What are they supposed to do with these guys who, despite having no formal training or legal representation, they're standing so boldly before them proclaiming the very Jesus who this court had condemned? And it'd be hard to deny the existence of the healed man. He was right there. He was probably arrested with Peter and John as part of the hubbub and ended up spending the night in jail with them, dancing. What should they do? What should they do with these guys? Verse 15, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Speak no longer to anyone in this name. Faced with the obvious truth of the healing, with the bold evidence proving a bold statement offered boldly by men who should have been intimidated by their circumstances and the people who faced them, faced with all that, these men chose to try to shut up the followers of Jesus. That was their brilliant conclusion. Not, hey, maybe we should look into this Jesus guy, or even, wow, I've seen so much proof, we should just get down on our knees and repent towards God and accept that Jesus is the one we should follow back to him. No, instead, they just want to keep anyone else from hearing the gospel truth. 
Well, we'll just tell them they can't talk about it anymore. Anytime you hear or read about someone trying to ban people from getting information about something, this is the picture you should have in your head. There's an old proverb about three monkeys. One has his eyes covered, the next his ears, the last his mouth. The common interpretation of these figures is that they live a life in happy ignorance, thinking that everything is just fine because they have refused to see otherwise. Of course, it's easy to laugh at the foolishness of the opinion of the ancient court, unless we look closely at the news of the day and see that this is still going on. Or worse, we look at our own lives. I mean, don't we all do this at times? Well, let's see how the apostles take their sentence, shall we? All right. Verse 18. Then they called them in again. Uh, the Sanhedrin called in the apostles. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes for us to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Remember, he was born this way for more than 40 years. He'd been begging at the gates of the temple. People had seen him every time they were there. And in a culture that required everyone to come to three different festivals a year and then had other opportunities and times and suggestions and... People knew this guy. They may not have known his name, obviously, not even recorded in scripture, but they knew him. He had been there. He was woven into the fabric of the generation. He was lame. He was born that way. He didn't get better. He was somehow made to walk. It's a miracle. It was undeniable. And in the end, it came down to that. If the council decided to beat or jail Peter and John, it would seem like they were punishing them for having healed the lame man. It didn't seem likely that the crowd would stand for that. Unhappy crowds turn into mobs. Mobs cause unrest. Unrest causes political problems, and political problems in Jerusalem in the first century often led to leaders being replaced, even leaders like the high priest. No one knew that better than Annas, who had been manipulated his way to being appointed high priest by the Romans almost 30 years earlier. He eventually found himself removed as part of a political squabble and then used his own power and machinations to get no less than six of his family members appointed to the position after him, including Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. They were both part of this council. None of those fit with how God had decreed that position was supposed to be filled or vacated, but, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, right? Well, I can't say that everyone at the top of the power structure was just looking out for themselves and their own place above all the others. I can say that many of them seemed focused on doing exactly that. So, they let Peter go, but they told him to keep his mouth shut. Or else. And Peter told them that he'd be scraping that advice off of his shoe on the way out the door. But he told them politely. Actually, Luke included some elements in this story that would have been very familiar to the people of the day. Uh, according to Plato, 
that's Plato, the uh, philosopher and historian, not Plato, the fun dough toy. According to Plato, when Socrates was on trial in Athens, the judges there ordered him to stop teaching. Socrates replied, I will obey God rather than you, and well, I have life and strength. I shall never cease from the practice and teaching of philosophy. This story was well known throughout the world at the time, and Luke, as he was writing the book of Acts, according to Dr. Ben Witherington, Luke is suggesting through this story that Christianity is an equally noble philosophy and that the truth about it must come out. I like that. Must come out. Remember at the time, the Christian faith is a sect of Judaism that pretty much equated to people who followed the philosophy of a certain rabbi. They met in houses, not temples, even though most of them at this stage in the story still went to the synagogues and the temple like, like they had before. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, after all. Christianity wasn't a formal religion so much as it was just an aspect of religious faith to be discussed over dinner or maybe on a street corner. Luke is showing us all that it really is something more than that. In fact, it's something worth giving up your life for, if need be. And instead of being discouraged by their arrest and admonition, the followers of Jesus seem to be energized by their encounter. I mean, look what they do when they're cut loose. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported that all the chief priests and the elders had said, I'm sorry, I totally messed that up. I am so sorry. Let's try this again. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's from the Psalms. Indeed, this is part of the prayer again, verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your Holy Spirit, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your Holy Servant, Jesus. What a great prayer. They're just like, hey, God, so many people are trying to work against you in your ways, but the truth is you're God. They can't do anything you can't overcome. In fact, what they do ends up working in your favor. Help us remember that and use it so that we can speak boldly and live out the message of Jesus. What they're saying is that they'll proclaim and God will heal. Now there's a prayer uttered with great faith, isn't it? Well, apparently God thought so too. Check verse 31. That's the one we're going to end with today. Verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and all were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, did God actually cause the room or the earth to shake as a response to their prayer? Sure, why not? But, if you would rather think they were all just caught up and felt shaken by the dramatic experience, you know what? You go right ahead. The point is, they felt empowered to speak boldly in the face of opposition. And so should we. 
We're not asked to be miracle workers. We aren't asked to change anyone's mind. We're not asked to advance the kingdom of God. We are to love like Jesus loved. And we are to speak the truth of Jesus boldly like the apostles and the others in the early church did. We're to let God be God and to trust that God is God. He doesn't need us to defend him. He doesn't need us to force others to follow him or to forbid the world from doing things we may not approve of. We are to be bold, but we are to be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus. God loves you. God wants you to be a part of his family. Even the people who murdered his son could have turned back to him at any moment and had been loved, accepted, and forgiven. So if that's true for them, how much more is that true for the rest of us? Huh? I think that's enough for today. So let's join in a word of prayer. You ready? Hey God, so many people try to work against you and your ways, but the truth is, you're God. They can't do anything you can't overcome. In fact, what they do ends up working in your favor. Help us remember that and use it so that we will speak boldly and live out the message of Jesus. Lord, we will proclaim boldly and we ask you to bring healing to our lives and our world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, wherever you are, wherever you found yourself, wherever you've brought yourself, know this. You have nothing to fear because God is already there. Go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you in this coming week. Bless you.